0: All right, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest needs no introduction, really. Marty Resh is CEO of Netography, and we'll get into the co-founding and, and the new company in a bit. But Marty, you're more, more well-known for creating Snort back in the day, mm-hmm. uh, uh, creating Sourcefire, selling that to Cisco, and like just being an eyeball to the birth and, and emergence of this entire security industry. Can you take me back to those days? Take me back to the creation of Snort, if you will. What was what was the idea behind it? And and if you can talk a little bit about what the threat landscape looked like at the time.
1: Well, that's a that's an interesting question. So let's see. Uh, back to the beginning. Um, so back in the late nineties. So Snort first lines of code for Snort were laid down in November of ninety eight, and um, Pre
0: blaster, predecessor, pre worm era, pre all of that stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh, buffer overflows were a big topic of conversation, and there were you know theories about how wormable things would be or not. Uh, and but we hadn't really seen any uh, truly big worms apart from kind of the the first one, the Morris worm back in the in the late eighties. And um, so all this stuff was kind of in the background. And I, I personally had just gotten started in security a couple of years before 98. So I, I started in the uh, industry as a government contractor in 96. Yeah. And um, so, one of the ways, you know, back then, there were, you couldn't get a degree in, in information security or anything like that. If you did anything security related in college, it was probably going to be around uh, cryptography, right? Right. Um, or maybe information theory and, and stuff like that. <clears throat> so, um, we all had to teach ourselves back then. Uh, so one of the ways that I like to teach myself because, you know, my engineering background is is kind of what uh, drives a lot of my thinking is um, writing my own tools. So uh, I went and looked at other people's open source tools and kind of saw how they did stuff. But for me, like um, doing- You were already a coder?
0: You were already a coder working in government service?
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, so my uh, I, I graduated in the early 90s um, with a computer engineering degree. So, uh, you know, I actually um, coded professionally uh, before I did government stuff. I, I did, you know, contract engineering and I uh, worked for a little uh, software company and stuff like that. So uh, I have what, kind what, of this. When you think back to like the late 90s, right
0: around that period,
1: this is pre-malware,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Pre-ransomware, pre-all of this stuff. What are you defending against? What was the, the the big attack surface or the big attack land uh, attack
1: vector at the time? Uh, well, we knew about uh, buffer overflows; they were a real thing back then.
0: Right, but this was just a lot of theoretical uh, academic research into memory safety issues. Mudge had his famous paper, like right around that mid to late 90s, there was a lot yeah. of academic issues around this. So this was when governments were starting to, big organizations were starting to pay attention to this coming down the pike, right?
1: yeah exactly and but you know some of the earliest rules in snort were for detecting no op sleds, for example, uh, ah. so maybe not not necessarily picking up the buffer overflow itself but for picking up the knob sled uh, that was indicating a buffer overflow was in progress so uh, the thing that really got me writing snort in the first place besides just teaching myself the security. Um, discipline by writing the tools was I just wanted to uh, keep tabs on what was going on in my home network while I was at work during the day. So, um, you know, I had a cable modem and uh, I had a a computer set up. You know, I wasn't on a switch network. We had uh, hubs back then. And um, so I'd kick off uh, Snort in the morning and I'd go to work and then I'd come back at night. And I. this was back before Snort had a detection engine. It was just doing packet logging. So I'd log the, you know, dump the packets, and then I'd dig through the directory structure, looking at you know, like who'd been knocking on the door uh, while I was at work. Because networks were much quieter back then, too. We didn't have all these uh, really chatty services and things like that. Um, it was kind of interesting. You know, you'd pick up uh, people you know, knocking on the door, port scanning and uh, uh, ping sweeping and stuff like so that. that was like still that. a
0: thing back then. Back then, that was the thing, right? There was a lot of activity around port scanning and that kind of noise.
1: Yeah, and you can see, you know, uh, so I'm in central Maryland, which means there's a lot of security people floating around here by one way or another. So, you know, you can see the neighbor's port scanning periodically and things like that. Um, So, uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting. But what happened was um, I decided after playing with Snort for a month, I decided I would release it as an open source project. Because the other thing you got to remember back in 98 was that, uh, open source was getting much more on the radar of, uh, kind of enterprise computing and, and, you know, the, the larger computing scene was early, really early, early
0: it. days though. Mm-hmm. Like, why did you decide that? Did you already have ambitions to turn it into a product? Did you, none of this at all? This was just, it was just kind of tinkering and figuring things out on your own.
1: Yeah. I thought it'd be fun. Um, so I, uh, I, I, kicked a release, a snort out the door uh, in late December of 98 uh, to see if anybody would use it. And I figured maybe I'd get a few emails and it'd be a fun little uh, rainy day and weekends project. And uh, right. so I but kicked my release. You're out. going a
0: little too fast because there's a lot of the kids listening here who just only know about GitHub and CI/CD pipelines and pushing all this stuff. When you talk about releasing it as open source back then, it was what? Putting something up on a mailing list somewhere? Like talk help me help paint the picture. I'm trying to get to like the really, really early beginnings of this thing that would eventually become what it is today.
1: Yeah. All right. So back then the big tool site was called packet storm. So, um, right. I storms where all the fresh exploits were, and it was also where all the new tools, uh, were. So when an exploit came out and it was actually released, um, PacketStorm was the place. There were a few other sites like Technotronic and stuff like that, but PacketStorm was like the, the main the clearinghouse default, right, yeah. for new tools as well as new exploits. So I would farm the exploits to look for network-based attacks that I could run into Snort to uh, figure out how to detect them, for example. And there were tools like Snort on there and Nessus was on there and um, y- you know some of the other uh, early uh, security tools, open source security tools were on there as well. Um, so I contacted uh, Ken Williams, who was the guy who ran the site, and I said, hey, I, I got this new thing called Snort I'd like to put up there. Could you put it on the front page for me? I, I'd like to see if anybody would be interested in using it. And he said, oh, sure, no problem. And so, you know, personal email. That, was what, the, this, that uh, was what
0: the landscape looked like at the time. There was a lot of personal relationships and getting things pushed up, a lot of manual. Everything was manual. Like, how do you how are you getting feedback on these products? Is it like waiting for email or
1: a month yeah, email. later? Get, yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't have a, uh, did not even have a snort mailing list at the time. So it was just individuals sending emails. So when you run snort, the banner pops up, hey, you're running snort. And it has, uh, at the time, it had my uh, email address in it. Right, right. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, copyright Martin Rush, um, y- you know, rush at whatever, clark.net, I think it was back then. And um, yeah, so people looked at that and they, or they'd look at the documentation and they'd say, oh, this is the guy who wrote it. And they just send me a one on one email. So, uh, was I Was it got instantly few- popular? Um, it was popular really like
0: shockingly quickly. How did um, you know and how and when did you know that you're onto something here?
1: Um, the first real inkling that I got that things were, um, percolating, uh, was probably in the summer of 99. So the way snort releases work, cause I had a day job. So this is like six right, to eight right. months. This is a, this is a
0: hobbyist. This is a hobbyist thing that is taking on a life of its own.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, the summer of 99, uh, I was, uh, the way snort releases happened was, you know, I'd work my day job, then I'd come home and after dinner and, you know, um, whatnot, I'd, uh, I'd go to my computer room and I'd crank out releases of snort. And I had my hand-built computers there, running all the different versions of, you know, BSD and Linux. And, you know, I had like some secondhand sparks and, uh, things like that running around, running sun OS. Uh, so I can do cross compiling to make sure it was portable. And um, when I would do a release, I would kind of get to a point where I was like, "Okay, I'm at a point where this, you know, there's enough new features here and stuff like that, and I've I've tested it sufficiently and written the doc documentation and things like that." So I bundled it all up in a tarball and uh, throw it back out to to Packet and a couple other sites. By this time, Snort had gotten notable enough that there were a few sites that were carrying it. So I'd send out several emails. With the tarball in them that said, hey, latest release of Snort, um, feel free to put it up on your site. And then I'd go to bed, and this was usually two or three o'clock in the morning when this release got uh, pushed out the door. I'd go to bed and I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have a few emails, so, you know, like this feature. Starting to feel traction, you're starting to, feel, traction, bondab- you're starting to right. feel
0: energy building around it, right?
1: So in the late summer of, um, of 99, I did a release of Snort that I didn't QA very well. So like, I was tired and I was like, just done. And I was just like, here, take it. <laughs> and I kicked it out oh. the door and I woke up in the morning and I had like 50 emails. And it was like, Snort's broken. It doesn't compile here. It doesn't work there. This feature is busted, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, holy cow, where did all these people come from? <laughs> right. So, you had uh, to break
0: it first to realize who were like using it and relying on it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I stood up the snort mailing list, uh, shortly thereafter, like a couple of days later to try to start coordinating the bug reports and, and QA and like, you know, started to do this iterative release. We had a public CVS server at this point, so people could check out the latest things that I had checked in and, and try them and compile them and stuff like that. Cause people were compiling their own at this time. You download it and you build it. Um, and, uh, you know, just to smooth out the, the feedback loop and, um, all of a sudden like within a couple of months there were thousands of people on the mailing list and i was like whoa well this is this is interesting (laughs) was there Um, ever
0: an urge was there ever an urge not to go the open source route or was it always in your mind that this was going to be the way it was and then i want to talk a little bit about how you got into monetizing this and kind of building that model in the early days
1: yeah you know for me um building the open source thing so Early on in my. Were you always secret- one of
0: those early open source advocates who were just like, everything wants to be
1: free? This No, uh-uh, no, no, no. No, I wasn't like that. I was more of, um, I was really interested to understand it. So this, this, you'll see echoes of this in the Sourcefire journey as well. So I was interested to understand how it worked and, um, like how these things snowballed and progressed and things like that. So I was really interested in the journey as opposed to the, uh, the destination. One of the things, and this, this is going to sound funny. Um, one of the things that I kind of recognized early in my security career was that there were kind of two types of people in the security world. There were the guys whose names you knew and there was everybody else. And, the guys whose names you knew had, you know, had different opportunities than everybody else and, and did different things than everybody else. And I thought, maybe someday if I really play my cards right, I'll be one of those guys that everybody knows their name. And that'll be fun. Um, but I didn't realize that Snort was going to be the trigger for it. And I wasn't even trying that. I thought Snort was just going to be this kind of interim step on my journey to doing something really relevant in security. But And, what the, guys
0: happened- whose, and the guys whose names we knew at that time were all focused on offensive security work, doing a lot of the sexy hacking things, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, those were the rock stars of cybersecurity back in those days. The defenders came along much later on, and people like you who made your name on defense came along much later, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. Well, you know, uh, and the attack side guys, they became notable because they were pointing out hey, there's some real flaws in these systems that everybody's relying on, and like something needs to be done about it. Um, so while there was, you know, there was the true black hat uh, hacker world, there were also the white hat hackers who were just trying to make security better, like the guys right, at right. Loft and, and so on. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it, was kind of a fascinating time for sure, because, you know, there were all these debates going on about, you know, full disclosure or not, and, you know, what, what disclosure worked and didn't work and how, do, how are we going to incorporate open source and what about these open source licensing models and, you know, are they viral where they infect other software that touches, it? you know, all this stuff was being uh, really hashed out in the late nineties and early two thousands. None of these answers were kind of written in stone back then. So yeah, it was a very, uh, wild west kind of time. Um, But yeah, I I had no inclination that Snort was going to turn into a thing that really, you know, turned my career into something that, you know, that other than being, you know, just Joe Engineer. Uh,
0: When and how did that switch get flipped? I mean, at what stage did you realize um, uh, we can run a support business around this and create something really meaningful here? And what was that trigger for you? Um,
1: well, there are a couple, two, two, two triggers. Uh, well, three triggers, I guess I would say one. Um, so I worked at a startup. Uh, I got recruited on the, on the power of snort. I got recruited to go work at a startup and build the, uh, an intrusion detection engine for them. So, uh, Uh, This sounded really uh, interesting and exciting after my government job where, you know, it would take months to get customer feedback. I thought startup would be fun. I'll go do that. So I went there and it kind of went for a a little while, less than a year. And then, you know, it it just it wasn't it it didn't go well. Uh, The company was uh, was really having a hard time. Um, So I left that and. I started thinking about what I wanted to do. So I sent out an email to the snort mailing list that said, don't contact me at this email address anymore. I don't work there anymore. I'm, I'm back to being a free agent. I'm thinking about my next steps. And instantly I had like job offers, um, you know, from a bunch of places. I was like, oh, this is really cool. But while I had been at the startup, I kind of like, I really observed something, which is, you know, if you're at a startup and you uh want to make a lot of money unless that startup is like a Google or an Apple or something like that. Um then the people who really um get the biggest benefit are the people who are early uh to the to the game. And um and I knew still true uh, you know, today. Yeah, especially yep, still true. And I knew as I was working there that like my ideas, like I was coming up with original ideas, like real meaty, you know, new technology ideas. And, you know, I I was just an engineer there. I wasn't a senior executive. I wasn't one of the founders. So it was just, uh, you know, here's an awesome idea. I just thought of a new way to, to attack this problem that nobody's ever thought of before. And they're like, oh, put a patent on it. And, you know, maybe it'll grow enough value in this company. So it'll be worth something to you down the road. And I was like, well, this seems kind of upside down. Um, So you're
0: starting to see the value of your work and the value of your contributions in a real meaningful way beyond just as an individual contributor. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, so I started to think real carefully about what I wanted my next move to be. And um, so I started talking to um, some of my kind of uh, uh, mentors and uh, people that I um, had, you know, these kind of conversations with. And um, they were, were really encouraging me to figure out how to you know, get people to pay money for, for snort. You know, this thing was right. free. And right. um, so they
0: were, they, 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 everyone had already known that snort had snort was, was uh, an integral part of the defense uh, Oh yeah, uh-huh. stack, right? The, the tech stack at that time for defenders, you had to use snort. So it's already on this, uh, this growth mode trajectory as an open source project and so on. So you're all, you guys are already starting to figure this out.
1: Yeah. Well, let me, I'll, I'll give you a stat. And this is one of the things that convinced me to go for it. So, um, as I was kind of mulling it over, uh, I got, um, handed. So Stephen Northcutt was one of my mentors and, uh, he was great. And he was like, you know, he, uh, spent a lot of time brainstorming with me on how to like, figure out how to get people to want to pay for snort. And, uh, one of the things he, he sent me was, uh, the results of a survey that the SANS Institute did. So Stephen Northcutt was the um, you know, head of operations at SANS, and SANS, obviously, is right. this big organization. Uh, and I was an instructor there for a while, too. And uh, he sent me uh, the survey results. And one of the questions on the survey was this big survey, multi-question, stuff like that. One of the questions on the survey was, which intrusion detection systems do you use? And it had all the commercial ones, and SNORT was also on there. Check as many as apply. SNORT was checked 92% of the time. And this is... Uh, you know, less than two years from- You first had line, no inkling uh, that this was the
0: level of-, of, I, of
1: No, none of no. at all.
0: <laughs> and I was like, holy crap, okay. <laughs> exactly. It's really one of those holy crap moments where the data is there and it's showing you the obvious sign that this thing is-
1: Yeah, this thing has been massively adopted. And in fact, it is the most popular intrusion detection system on the planet right now. And, and already the snort rule language had become- the standard for defining network based attacks as well and i was like well i mean if i don't figure out how to make money on this somebody else is going to so
0: and this is still the early 2000s right we and then you guys were obviously aided by the microsoft problems with security which put it on the front page the gates yeah. memo and all of that stuff would come later on right
1: yeah this was this was the fall of 2000 so this is uh you, you .com know. bust as well is happening right around that time as yes. well if i remember correctly exactly exactly so um so those were the first kind of uh two things i came out of uh the startup i had a bunch of job offers i was like oh i i'm personally very marketable and then i found out snort is as popular as it was i was like i you know at this point i'm you know i have a reputation of being a relatively humble person uh at this point you know this little voice in the back of my head says you have world-class ideas. Go go, go do yeah. something with them. Um, so, uh, And at this point, I also had one of the other conversations that was going on was there was a security vendor that wanted to buy Snort from me. And they're like, Will it, you know, cash on the barrel head, come work at the company, we'll give you stock, so on and so forth. And I finally got down to brass tacks and got a real offer on the table. And I just thought, well, if it's worth that much to you, it's probably worth a lot more. Um I, I had a business model in mind and I decided to just go for it. So in January of 2001, I incorporated Sourcefire uh, with the business model of building a value-added platform around the open source core, what, what's basically called the open core model now. Back then, you know, it didn't have a name because nobody had really done it before. That's um, what I was
0: going to ask. When you say no one has really done it before, there is no model for you to mirror. There is no mimicking at that time. Nope. Now, was this just your own inkling that you know what? There's a services model, there's that, there's an entire thing that I can build around this. Like, how did you come up with this?
1: Well, so I understood something kind of fundamentally about Snort that I think a lot of people, um, it wasn't obvious to other people because I talked to a lot of people about it. I want to do this business model, and I had a variety of feedback, most of it was that won't work, <laughs> and um. The business model, uh, what I understood was that snort at the small scale solves problems, but snort at the large scale causes problems. And the problems that snort at the large scale causes are different than the ones that it solves. So if you solve those large scale problems, manageability, scalability, performance, automation, and support, if you solve those problems, then people will pay you for that, right? Enterprises will pay you for that. They want the function but they want that function to be manageable, scalable, automated, performant, and have a support organization around it. So I decided that would be the model that we would build at Sourcefire. And um, so we went for it. I started the company in my house. Uh, so we were in my living room for the first year we were Did in Did you take any
0: seed funding at this stage or are you bootstrapping it?
1: Uh, Steven Northcott gave me money out of his own pocket to get us wow. going. Uh, you know, it was... Uh, it was not a lot of money, but it, it was what he had available. And, um, you know, I gave him a, a little chunk of the company uh, for that. And we operated on that money for 10 months. Uh, it was about $100,000. So I, we were.
0: I don't want to derail the flow of this, but it's something you mentioned about uh, just coming up with the confidence uh, that you had. You know what? I have these brilliant ideas. And the notion of confidence, especially among entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, uh, 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 not inferiority, what's the, there's a phrase for it when you, you, you don't believe that you belong. Uh, you oh, don't it's imposter center. syndrome. Uh, imposter syndrome. Yeah. Uh, you know, imposter syndrome is something that happens to a lot of young entrepreneurs and early stage op- entrepreneurs at this time. And I'm bringing this up because my audience is a lot of startup founders, security startup yeah. founders who re- like really want to think through these things. When you talked about that switch that said, you know what, I'm onto something here. And my ideas are actually quite brilliant because look at what's happening here. Was that imposter syndrome? was that just your own modesty or like how do you how do you is
1: there a is there a, a trick to getting over that hump i I don't know that I would say that there's necessarily a trick to getting over the hump I think it's um, to some degree it's self awareness so I always have um, a healthy dose of doubt in the background and it, it applies to everything I do, both you know people bringing me stuff as well as me coming up with my own stuff. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is to kind of trust my inner voice and trust my um, my thought processes, um, because you know I'm a fairly thoughtful person, and when I not so much methodical. You know, You're methodical not, about thinking things Yeah, methodical, things and, and like I think things through for a while before, like this business model, I thought about for months before I tried to do it. Um, and I don't know anything about creating business models, but you know. It, it, Just made sense after your analytical thinking. It just made sense. There's always a part in the back of me that constantly reminds myself there are people who have built businesses, big, valuable businesses, over the centuries um, that didn't have any idea what they were doing either, and they did fine. So go, you know, the important thing is to take a step and then take another step and evaluate, you know, how you're doing periodically and, and. and have that, that confidence, you know, you, you, got, you bring your, like plenty of people will tell you you've got bad ideas and you're terrible at this. Very few people will tell you you're amazing at this. Keep going. Um, you have to be that person that tells you keep going, uh, most of the time. Um, and you know, it's funny because, um, on the day to day, when you look at what you're doing, none of it ever really seems like it's very big and momentous. It's only when you look back that you can see the big and momentous things that you did. Right. So the important thing is just to take the next step, take the next step, take the next step. The world will let you know if you're completely off base. Like that's very obvious. You know, the company runs out of money and has to shut down. Okay, right, not, right, not great right. ideas. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're doing well, you'll see it um, and it, it'll, it'll show up in results uh, and you'll be able to look back and say, these were, these were obviously good things that we did. Does
0: imposter syndrome seep into your life now? I mean, does that is that something that pops up every now and then, especially with the fast pace of technology moving? I'm a technology journalist for 20 years, and and mm. many times today I'm looking through some of these cloud security concepts and so on, and it feels like, I, I don't know if there's a thing about aging out of in this industry, or if this mm-hmm. there's a little bit of imposter syndrome trying to figure out, do I really know and understand all of this? Is yeah, that something that crosses of- your mind?
1: I, I do feel like, you know, sometimes I feel like am I missing something? Did like did I miss some big inflection point that right. that that like because I don't understand, I'm gonna like I'm completely off base here. But you know, I have good ways and I have a big uh network of people where I can kind of um, head check myself periodically interest, yeah. and say, Hey, you know, like in the business I'm in now, one of the things that got me to jump into it was the fact that, you know, almost everybody that we compete with is on architectures that are you know, 20 years old. They're all on appliances and they're all doing deep packet inspection and neither one of these things work very well in the world that we are in and moving into at an accelerating rate. And you know, I look at it and I'm like, I thought this stuff was like toast 10 years ago when Sourcefire got acquired um, and here we are and none of it's changed. So did I miss something? Right, <laughs> like, right. So that pops up occasionally
0: and a lot of the time you have to do a smell check with your own internal network and your own kind of peers, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh,
0: Let's go back a little bit to, so now now you guys are off and running, you're creating this company. Can you talk a little bit about what the competitive landscape looked like at the time? And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, how long did it take before Sourcefire was a a going concern where you're starting to see the IPO down the road? Like, what what does that look
1: like? So, um, let's see. So the when I got the company started, uh, the big gorillas were like ISS and Cisco. Right. Uh, right so right. that yeah, was Rob. They had security uh, Rob was creating this Black Ice stuff over there, right? Yep. Yeah, Black Ice and uh, Nate Lawson with uh, Real Secure before oh, that right, and stuff right, like that. Right. Right. So, right. Right. And they also had their vulnerability management business and all that stuff, right? So they were a, they were a big company. And then you had Cisco was a gorilla, um, right. and there were a few others like NFR and uh, Intrusion dot and things like that. So um, you know some golden oldies. So, uh, you know, I, I got the company going and we had a, you know, we had a friends and family network right out of the gate because of snort. Right. So right. snort laid the, the playing field, um, for the company very quickly. So even when I was selling, literally selling only over the phone, out of my house, doing shipping and receiving in my front hallway and builds in my kitchen, like literally building appliances out in my kitchen. We had real customers. Uh, our first four customers were uh Coopers, Intel, SAIC, and um, International Paper. Um, and that and, know, that, and that, that it came out of the Snort
0: community that had
1: came out of the Snort community. Like we didn't have any marketing. Our entire marketing budget was my .dot sig file in the bottom of my emails on the on the Snort mailing list. It's crazy That's it. to
0: think today, right?
1: Yeah, right. And we had no funding. Either. Like at this point, we we were still operating on the hundred thousand dollars that Stephen Northcutt gave me out of his own pocket. So uh, and credit cards. And so um, you know we're doing these builds in the house and shipping, and receiving out of the front hallway. And I'm taking phone calls on my back deck uh, because I had a six month old daughter and I didn't want people to think we weren't a real company if right. she started crying. <laughs> so um, real you know, and, startup and then we sell, drama,
0: right? like real yeah, real then we sell
1: these. These big deals—we sell these six-figure deals, four six-figure deals in a row, off, you know, like off my back porch, basically. And up to that point, nobody would give us the time of the day in the in the venture capital world, especially because you know it was the dot-com crash was in progress. Right, right. But were you trying to raise? Were
0: you trying to raise? And were you trying to? Were you like already uh, investigating the options?
1: I was investigating it because it became very obvious to me that if we didn't have enough money to compete with it, companies yeah. like ISS and Cisco, we were just going to get bulldozed. You know, you can be the best kept secret, but that's not a great thing to do in the enterprise right, security right. world. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, we, we were doing these crazy deals out of my house. And then all of a sudden, the venture capitalists started saying, oh, geez, you can sell stuff that's free. Tell us more. Right. Um and uh, you, know, you take the money. first round of funding? Um, how old was, first how old tr- was it? Uh, well, Sourcefire was one year old. We were, it was in February of uh, 2002. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that was the, um, the first tranche of the series a, and then I want to raise the second tranche with, um, um, you know, a a West coast lead. Um, so we raised about uh, a little over seven and a half million dollars in the series a, um, and, uh, you know, once we had that, started hiring and, and bringing in talent and uh, moved out of my house into an office, which was nice, and um, you know started turning into a real company. And when I knew that we were kind of on the path to an IPO, I mean, there were some tumultuous moments, right? So the IDS to IPS transition happened in 2003. Right. Can you talk,
0: talk a little bit about that as well? Because there was a lot of doubts about... The viability of Snort and the viability of Sourcefire around that time—I'm I'm pretty sure you're familiar with those
1: conversations
0: about this shifting oh, yeah. dynamic.
1: Yep. So, funny story: uh, f- the first kind of real, uh, real-world deployed prototype of intrusion prevention actually happened on the Snort engine. It was a set of patches that someone submitted. Uh, To me, and uh, I was like, eh, I don't know, Uh, you know, because the signatures weren't really very high fidelity in a lot of cases. So with the false positive rate, what are you going to block on, Uh, you know, that kind of thing. So I was like, oh, I don't know. You know, visionary, right? <laughs> so, speaking of imposter syndrome, um, so uh, you, you know, the whole idea was kind of prototyped on the Snort engine. I I poo pooed it, and then uh, you know, a couple years later, it shows up as Tipping Point and uh, Introvert, and I was like, "What the what the heck?" Um, so uh, yeah, we were kind of uh, caught with our pants down to some degree, and it was a one two punch, right? So you had these two companies that came out with hardware accelerated intrusion prevention systems. Uh and you also had Gartner coming in saying, Well, intrusion setting, detection- the, setting
0: the category and putting an acronym on it, right?
1: Yep. Exactly. Intrusion detection is dead meat, intrusion prevention is the way of the future. And you know, and here's two IPS vendors, and everybody else is kind of like, good luck. <laughs> and um Yeah, I was like, Holy cow, what are you talking about? Intrusion detection's not dead. Come on, you're killing me here. <laughs> you know, I'm feed my kids. Right, right, right. <laughs> with, this, with this business. And um, Yeah. So it was like this really tumultuous thing. And I was like, well, you know, let's go, let's go look at what we did with Snort to get it to be an IPS back then. Um, So, you know, we started like coming up with a plan to come up with an IPS. Uh, And at the same time, uh, I had an idea for another technology that turned out to be Sourcefire's big differentiator. So we had to do, execute two things at the same time. One was build, uh, you know, turn Snort into an IPS engine. Uh, and and, what, what, and was so that allowed,
0: Did that require uh, complete re-engineering or you already had the plumbing in place to be able to get that done easily?
1: It's not, yeah, it's not really re-engineering because it's the same, it's the same uh, uh, detection logic, same streamer, you know, something like most of it is exactly the same. It's kind of where you plug into the uh, network adapters and what you do when you see something you don't like, right? Let so. me ask
0: a stupid question right here, especially as it relates to the Gartner setting the category. Did that force you to pivot or did that help you figure out that you had to pivot? Because uh, uh, there's if, a lot of entrepreneurs today creating technology and building products for a category that Gartner has already defined rather than just kind of building for what you know the buyer wants and there's that you know there's that balance of trying to figure out how am I how do I follow whatever the, the, the where do I follow the industry is growing do you feel at that time that Gartner
1: forced you into it or helped you get there that's a great question I think um I, I pushed back against Gartner. Like we had, we had a, a not very nice uh, public fight over the the future of intrusion detection back then, and it um, weren't entirely know, I, wrong either. It it wasn't, but it, like everybody kind of, it, it could have been done better. Like everybody could have done a better job. <laughs> I'll, I'll just put it that way. You feel um, you feel like
0: that like as an industry, we lost a lot of resources or wasted a lot of resources in not getting it right from the early days.
1: Um, I don't think so because there's kind of you know there's the, there's the art of what's possible with the technology that you've got right. So you have to get networking technology to a certain point before you can do something like intrusion prevention because doing deep packet inspection at speed with high load you know enterprise loads and stuff like that there's a lot of uh, compute and memory um, that's required to do that. And you know we were on x86 architectures, not on custom ASICs and stuff like that. So we were kind of beholden to the Intel architecture, and and we made. Our, our bet on on that being the way to go, which we turned out to be right eventually, but it took a while to, to get ahead of the uh, ASIC guys um, and the limitations of ASICs. So um, I don't feel like we wasted a whole bunch of time and effort kind of getting from point A to point B. Um, I, I do think there, there's a mix of Gartner kind of defining the market and kind of forcing our hand to some degree because Um, customers started saying, well, what are you doing about intrusion prevention? Because that's what they're reading from them uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, there's also customers who are saying, we're going with this because, uh, you know, the tipping point box doesn't see everything that you guys see, but what it does do is it blocks a hundred things that are definitely bad. Right. Um, right. And you don't block them. You require us to go like deal with it. And it's like, okay, I get that. So I got customer push and I also got, you know, I'm hearing it that, you know, you got to do something about this. So we built uh ips into snort and we also we built the secondary technology called real-time network awareness or rna and we, uh, to, to drive context into snort so that snort got a lot smarter about its environments and when we finally came out with our ips product we were actually highly differentiated and we had you know a lot of great things in our in our corner which which turned us into the company that we turned into and still pre-ipo right you know. still pre-ipo at yeah. that time. The IPO yeah we didn't IPO when? till 2007 seven right yeah, so it was a year, a year after, March of 2007, a year after the checkpoint deal uh, got shut down.
0: We'll get <laughs> to that about. in a second, but I want to talk about the 2000s, the early 2000s era, mm-hmm. and the, the era of the Windows War, and we talked about, you know, the, the Gates Computing Memo and all of that stuff around 2000. How much did that help, like, pour gasoline on this fire of, of, of a cybersecurity industry? And uh, were you, were there ever... Um, a tendency to want to focus and re-engineer for what's happening, uh, uh, mm. pivot the company in any way.
1: Uh, typically, no. So uh, one of the things that I always try to um, really focus on and, and pay attention to from an engineering perspective is there's you know there's the there's the design and architecture for the moment, and then there's the design and architecture that will always be relevant. And, and building something that will always be relevant, like Snort, we're twenty five years into Snort almost still relevant yeah. because it's a classic architecture. Like it does what it does. It does it very well. And it was always built to be something um, that's, you know, that works on any IP network. Um, so we never engineered or rarely engineered for the moment, always engineered for the long haul. Uh, and I think, you know, if you're going to build a, a, a company, my attitude about building companies is that you always build the best company that you can. So people ask me, you know, hey, Marty, are you going to IPO? Are you going to sell it? Um, you know, what's going to – what's your goal with the company? My answer is always the same. I build the best company that I possibly can, and good things will happen. Uh, and that's, you know, and, and that's it. So from a shareholder standpoint, there's going to be increasing value, and and that's, you know, what you need to know. From a, a team standpoint, we're going to build cool things and stay competitive in this market and be good to this team. Uh, you know, uh, while we build this company. Um, so yeah, we're. we're uh, I, I've never really. Well, you get forced by trends like IPS, next gen firewall. There are market forces that force you to uh, respond right. or force you to get out in front of them, like EDR. Um, and then there are, uh, uh, you, you know, kind of the, the classic assumptions, you know, we're going to build this this way because this will always be a relevant way to attack this problem. Um, when you think back to those days, what is, are there any regrets, anything you missed, anything that still gnaws at you? Ooh, um, well, I mean, there are things that gnaw at me, like, uh, you know, the the data management back end for our uh, ma- central management platform was like a boat anchor that uh, we had to wear for, you know, 18 years um, because, uh, you know, we kind of chose poorly in the early days. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't have too many regrets from a technology standpoint. Um, you know, you really get front row seats for how your decisions turn into inertia uh, when you build these things, which is really fascinating. I kind of joke around, you know, the, the two objects with the most inertia in the entire universe are a black hole and a software project with one user. That's (laughs) true. As soon as it gets a user, like all all of a sudden you're constrained with what you can do. This thing's got inertia now. Um, and the more users you get, the more inertia it gets. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's really kind of, uh, fascinating how the projects develop and how the early decisions that you make impact the, uh, you know, what you can do down the road and things like that. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, from a business standpoint, I probably would have tried to structure my Series A a little bit differently, stuff like that.
0: But right, right. small, small, There's... small, small, operational things. The IPO yeah. came right before another market crash that would happen in 2008, right? So you kind of timed it almost perfectly. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about like what the, the public market looked like for cybersecurity companies at that time? And the IPO process, was it a straight, smooth, straightforward thing for you? Um Okay. As I barely so there, remember I, any of this, I remember writing about you guys IPOing, but I barely, barely remember off the top of my head like what did
1: what the landscape looked like. So there there weren't a whole lot of security companies that were public at the time, and there was demand for them, right? So cybersecurity is always a hot commodity. Um, you know, I like to say so cybersecurity is like plumbing. Uh, you know, if the pipes are leaking, people are buying, and, and baby, right. <laughs> the pipes are always leaking. <laughs> always leaking. They're always leaking. Um, so uh, um, cybersecurity is kind of this, uh, you know, this eternal problem that is, is always there. Um, and there's, so there's a lot of demand for companies that you can invest in to be able to uh, um, y- you know, capture some of the upside. Uh, so we saw a lot of hunger. And just from a technology company standpoint, there weren't even a tremendous number of technology companies that were public uh, in 2007. How much have so, you raised up to this point now? Uh, you had this, you mentioned a small CVC at around seven.
0: By the time you get to IPO, you had raised how much?
1: Uh, 56 million. Okay. Yeah. So not, not a huge mu- amount of money. And in
0: fact, after over seven uh, years now, right? Like six or seven years.
1: Yeah. Six, over six years, Fifty fifty-six million, 56 million. And we actually only used about 35 million to get public. We never touched the last 20. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. It? We're an extremely cash efficient company, believe it or not. Um, so uh any, anyway, yeah, the the IPO process, I mean, it was straightforward for me because I didn't have to do very much. I right, wasn't the CEO at this went, yeah. point. Well, I had hired a CEO, and in fact, I had hired an entire team. So just like um the journey of open source was the thing that was kind of interesting to me and one of the drivers for it, the journey of Sourcefire was not just, you know, being this, you know, titan of industry and building my own company and you know, being you know, the front man or anything like that. I built Sourcefire and I very quickly figured out like I have a degree in engineering and nothing else. And, you know, I've read a couple of business books, but, you know, up until that point, I'd never run a business. I didn't know anything about it. So, big self
0: awareness uh, point, though, right? Big self awareness point for a lot of entrepreneurs who have this dream of being CEO of their own company and so on. Was that a a difficult internal, personal decision for you to, to realize on your own that, you know what, I'm an engineer,
1: not a business guy. I need to get an expert in here to really do this thing right? Um, so I was the CEO for the first 16 months of the company. And then at the end, and, um, what I came to realize as I'm doing finance and operations and sales and marketing and, and still writing code, uh, and doing builds and, you know, shipping and receiving and all this other stuff, what I, I really started to understand was that there are a variety of things that I'm, you know, I'm good at a lot of things. I'm great at a very few things and I'm not very good at several things as well. and. I became very worried that the biggest risk that the company faced was my inexperience and my inability to, uh, be great at the things, all the things that I needed to be great at to make this company go. Um, so yeah, I made a very conscious decision. It wasn't hard for me to let go. In fact, I was, you know, kind of, uh, well known for, okay, I just hired you to do this function. I'm going to get you up to speed and then you're going to run with it. Um, like really offloading uh, onto the people that we hired. But I hired this awesome management team. Like the the management team, I got so lucky to hire these great people. Uh, They were available, you know, Post .com crash and stuff like that. I had this team of hugely capable people who were available. All these people were, you know, every bit as smart as me and smarter, bring them in um, to run the company. And then I did just like I did with open source, I started, you know, watching how they did what they did and paying very close attention, you know, sitting in a meeting with a sales meeting with, you know, our our chief operating officer who'd been selling since I was in grade school, Um, you know, just watching him talk to customers. What does he say and how does he say it? And like, how does he like keep the conversation going? Or, or, you know, watching the CEO that I hired talking to VCs and and watching the CFO talking about financial models and understanding kind of what's good and what's bad because I didn't know what the difference between, you know, is this number too high? Is this number too low? You know, things like that. So all those things is watching all these guys doing their jobs and like being in those meetings all the, you know, from start to finish, uh, all the way up to the multi-billion dollar acquisition and, you know, getting that over the finish line, just watching all these people, our lawyers and stuff like that. How do they do what they do? How do they talk about it? How do they think about it? What are they telling me? You know, all these kinds of things. Cause the journey, like if you, if you build a big, powerful company and you, Bringing all these great people on board, and then you don't pay attention to what makes them great. You miss the journey. You miss all those you're, you're learning just, you're, opportunities. Yeah, you're, right. You're minimizing your your upside. That's your upside. It's not just the money and the notoriety and stuff like that. Your upside is turning into a more capable person
0: and surrounding yourself with those experts. Having you know, having some luck that you find the right set of people and so on. So the IPO happens. When did mm-hmm. the Immunet acquisition happen? Because that's when I remember Adam O'Donnell and Oliver and those guys, they were building your Immunet on the side. We were right around the CDR revolution, if you want to call it mm-hmm. that. What was your thinking into, you know what, let me pick up an antivirus product here, and what was the plan and the thinking behind
1: that? Okay, so this, uh, uh, we bought them. Uh, because the right acquisition... around
0: then, AV is dead. It's the, the, the going vernacular, right?
1: Well, AV is dead, but client-side attacks are on the rise, right? Right. So client-side attacks, you know, malware uh, is on the rise, and traditional AV is really not getting the job done anymore. So I've known Oliver and Al Huger and and Adam. I've known them all for 20-plus years. So um, they were kind of off doing their thing, and I heard they are doing cloud-based antivirus. I'm like, what what is this? You're uploading files to the cloud and processing them? What what makes that smart? Um, So they're kind of doing their own thing, um, you know, very stealthy. For a while. And then we get to 2010 and I'm hearing more and more from my customers, you know, we're really having trouble with client side attacks and smart doesn't really do such a great job with client side attacks. So like, what are you going to do? You know, should we really renew the service contract? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> let's, you know, let's, let's think about it. So it was that.
0: driven by customer, a allowed by customer demand.
1: Like yeah. Real customer well, demand, real customer demand. And, you know, I didn't necessarily want to get into being an endpoint company per se, but I started, you know, um, Matt Wachinski, who was the head of uh, VRT, which turned into Cisco Talos.
0: Is Is that? And he had Google stairwell.
1: No, no, no. Matt Wachinsky is at uh, Cisco. He he runs Talos. Oh, he's still at Cisco, right? 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 Yeah, yeah. So um, I'd kind of like plugged him and uh, Al and Oliver together to kind of keep tabs on what was going on over there. And eventually, Matt came to me one day, and he's like, "You really need to take a look at what they're doing." So I went and looked Why? at what they were doing. Why? What, what, what
0: was that trigger? That
1: you know what these guys are onto something here. Um, he, well, it was because they had a weird architecture, model. It was a weird model, but it was um, so one one of my uh, things that I'm I'm good at is seeing technology just not for what it is, but what for it could be, right. uh, or what it, for what it could be, uh, and. Um, so I, I he he was like, They're, they've got this cloud, this metadata-driven cloud detection architecture. It's really cool. You should look at it. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go take a look at it. And I looked at it and I was like, this is incredibly powerful because what it allows you to do, it, so um, AmyNet slash AMP turned into Sourcefire and now Cisco AMP. Right. Um, that technology has a write-once-detect-everywhere back end. So what that means is I can define detection one time in this cloud backend, and it applies to the entire global deployed footprint across all my customers automatically, instantly. That's um, all if we do it now. But back then,
0: this was a revolutionary thing to have this right. uh, crowd model, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So it, it could do that, and I started looking at it, and I started seeing, okay, well, this could be our, our Windows client-side uh, attack detection and protection capability, but it's also – it's got this big cloud backend, which means you can get global intelligence out of what you're seeing um, you know, happening uh, everywhere. Um, also, the way that they do what they do – you could take that and you could move that capability to the network as well. You could do a lot of those functions on the network as well. So catch ne- malware in flight and do something about it or catch it in a mail server or catch it on a web proxy. Um, and that'd be really interesting. So I saw all these possibilities. You could put it on Linux, you can put it on uh Mac OS and, and you know, you can build this really powerful anti-malware capability that has these global um, uh, capabilities um, uh, on this. And I was like, we got to have it. So I, I went and I talked to my, um, uh, I talked to my CEO and I talked to my board and I talked to everybody and I said, we've got to go, we have to go buy this because this is, this is the other piece that turns us into, uh, a multi-product company that is going to be more than just, you know, IPS and GFW. Um, this is going to be, you know, the thing that turns us into a much bigger footprint company. So, um, they, uh, yeah you know, they listened and uh we uh, we pulled the trigger so it was the, the last it was basically right at the beginning of 2011 and made uh, it so a more complete product happened. yeah um and, and you know we brought them in and they just supported windows at the time they were very very small we bought the company for uh 20 something million dollars and uh you know and a bunch of sourcefire stock sourcefire source stock which became cisco yeah. stock and then everyone got yeah well at the time sourcefire stock was trading at um you know 22ish Uh, you know, Cisco acquired us for 76 bucks a share. So they got a lot of upside there. And then that 76 bucks a share has doubled since at least uh, at Cisco. So good deal, right? Prior (laughs) Um, to the
0: Cisco acquisition, which was a $2 billion cybersecurity acquisition long before Duo and Okta, you guys did it first. You mm -hmm. were approached by Checkpoint and you had agreed to a deal with Checkpoint an Israeli company uh, that agreed to acquire Sourcefire. And that became controversial, very, very controversial off the bat. Can you kind of paint a picture of how that went down? Are there any fun stories about the government calling you late
1: at night? Uh, Well, (laughs) not so much the government calling me late at night. So um, what happened? So they uh, came in in, uh, the summer of 2005. So Sourcefire is a four-year-old company at this point. We've got our IPS out. We've got uh, uh, RNA out. So, you know, we've got a differentiated product and we're making progress in the market. So that was good. Um, they were seeing customer demand for an IPS, please build an IPS. And I think they had tried to do their own internally, but it was, um, um, you know, it wasn't particularly well received. So we started talking to them and they, you know, they put a, an offer on the table, $225 $225 million million cash deal. All cash, right? Yeah, not bad. Um, so, um, you know, uh, the board decided to take it and, um, you know, we were going to be acquired by Checkpoint. So Checkpoint's a public company at this point there's an announcement, you know, this is in the paper. Did you, you know, know stuff the bat like this was
0: going to be controversial? Did you guys go into accepting that offer thinking to yourself, hmm, it might be some national security ramifications here.
1: Okay. Well, okay. There's one funny story <laughs> here. Um, so, uh, um. So, you know, we have the big party the announcements out there. A few days later, I'm, uh, you know, in the CEO's office, uh, um, Wayne Jackson, our CEO at the time. Uh, I'm in his office chatting with him. And I'm like, so Wayne, you know, I'm not not that I'm counting my money or anything like that, but so how does this actually, like, what are the next steps in this to get it closed? And he's like, well, there's two big um, regulatory hurdles we have to get over. There's Hart Scott Rubino, which I think will be easy. That's an antitrust uh thing. And then there's Cepheus, the council on foreign investment in the US. I said, Oh, what's that? And he said, Well, all the uh departments of the executive branch have to give the thumbs up to uh to the deal happening for a, a foreign held company to to buy SourceFire. I was like, Well like departments which departments he's like oh you know department of transportation department of agriculture uh dod and doj i was like uh-oh yeah. <laughs> dod and doj they might actually have a problem with this because snorts everywhere in the government uh at this point it's very well trusted and very um you know broadly deployed in all sorts of crazy places uh at this point i was like oh boy well it'd be interesting to see what they have to say and what they yeah, had I to say was what say? are you doing no way <laughs>
0: Did you understand it at the time? Was that a disappointing thing to deal with? Or did you understand the ramifications that they had seen? And this is relevant to today, because now there's a lot of sanctioned stocks around cybersecurity companies and international companies doing business here and who owns what and who's getting kicked out. And it's just become a top of mind thing But you dealt with it back then. How I mean, did you understand it from their perspective? Or was that like a really super disappointing thing?
1: Oh no, I understood it. I understood exactly, um, what their issue was. Like if you're, if you're concerned about, um, who owns a piece of software that's, you know, widely distributed. It keeps coming off snort.org. Like most people don't lift the hood and see what's going on in the open source uh, engine. They just like download it and go. So um, it's kind of funny uh, because uh, I joke around sometimes and, you know, every once in a while when I'm, especially when I'm talking to government people, they're like, do you have a clearance right now? And back, you know, 20 plus years ago, I had a clearance, but I don't anymore. I, what I usually respond is, well, no, I don't have a clearance, but, you know, the U.S. government trusts me personally like they trust few other people on planet Earth. Absolutely, trust, and you have of a, lot of, and there's a lot of,
0: there's a lot of your own credibility riding there and a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, snart's trust, like you mentioned, it was this trusted thing came on the back of your name and your, your, your own relevance.
1: Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I I, did, you know, your I didn't, you know, I personally your Shareholders have, weren't happy
0: about the.
1: Shareholders weren't happy, but the stock didn't really go down substantively afterwards. It was well, we were we weren't public at the time. Our shareholders were VCs. That's right, right, right. So right. of course, the stock didn't go down. Um, yeah, I think the the uh, the investors were somewhat disappointed, but you know, once you get one acquisition offer like that, there's a good yeah. chance you know you're on the right track. You're probably going to uh, be okay and, and build a real company. And what we did post the. The checkpoint, um, you know, deal getting shut down. So, we announced the deal had been shut down in, in uh, March of 2006. We immediately went out and raised our, a $20 million Series D round and then announced we were going to go public. Right. So we never t- actually touched the money in that Series D round. That was just $20 million of gunpowder, essentially, right. um, to, to quiet all the, the doubters who were saying, well, source fire is toast. These guys, you know, they're, they're going to crash and burn now. We're like, oh, well, we just raised $20 million and we're going public in, in a year or so. And, and we did. Did you come close um, to selling so- the company
0: to anyone else prior to that? I mean, did you come and did you come close to selling the company to another big vendor? I'm trying to think if it didn't land in Cisco's hand, where would it be today?
1: Um, no, we, we did not come close. We had a, a hostile bid for the company really? in uh, 2008. Yeah, I don't know if you remember this, but Barracuda um, threw a, uh, a, a bid uh, out publicly. I do not remember um, this at all. Yeah, this was back when the you know Sourcefire stock wasn't doing too well. We had kind of a bumpy start in the public markets, and um, so our, our stock price was trading kind of low, and the markets were in turmoil. This is in the middle of two thousand eight, so it's like uh, I think housing June of two thousand eight. Crisis
0: has just erupted, and yeah, everything is collapsed. right. And,
1: and also, we're hiring a new. We we publicly announced that we're hiring a new CEO, but he wasn't in the seat yet. So uh, these guys fired in an offer, and you know we said thank you, thank you, but no thank you. Um, <laughs> So yeah that that was uh that was it. and then you know we had a few sniffs now and then but nobody got serious about it till Cisco in 2013.
0: And and that be, that was a no-brainer at that time I mean it it, it because the, the price tag was surprising to external outsiders. You were not surprised by the yeah. price tag because at that time you guys were on 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 a runaway train.
1: Yeah, we were you know uh our trailing 12 month revenue uh, when we got acquired was something like 2 250 million and we were growing at 40%. Wow. And we had, you know, we had IPS, and we had you know the premier IPS engine in, in the industry. We had our next generation firewall technology, and we had the uh, the EDR technology that was um, just emerging at the time. Uh, so you know we were getting into a position to be a real powerhouse. Um, so yeah, the the price tag you know we felt pretty justified with the numbers that we got.
0: Was did Cisco turn out to be the best and, and most logical, obvious landing spot for you? You think that that's are you? Are, when you look back at the life of Snort, are you entirely happy with where it is today?
1: I, I am. I, you know, I, I don't really uh, have regrets about it. Every once in a while, you know, you always do the "what it could have, yeah. should have" thing. Uh, you know, you see the markets, uh, the market expansion that happened from whatever 2015 until the end of last year, and you're like, oh boy, it would have been nice to, you know, uh, control my own destiny a little bit more on that. But you know, what are you going to do? I, Cisco was a nice it was a good home for the people and the technology and the customers um cisco's a really nice place to work it's very good to its people uh it, it's uh, they have excellent benefits the corporate culture there is you know it's a huge company but it's it's not like super dysfunctional right. or anything like that it's actually a, a nice place to work
0: um just well, stick around frust-
1: there uh, well, it gets frustrating, you know, because it's hard to make the giant ship move sometimes. And I, At my roots, I am something of an, you Engineer, know, I'm a, I'm a, builder, a guy right. who likes to make stuff happen. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it became kind of frustrating for me. And, you know, there's when 17,000 salespeople have your phone number, uh, which is the number of salespeople <laughs> there, you know, you get pulled into hey, all everything. sorts of stuff. And eventually it's just like, oh, it I don't know. Yeah, I've been working for 35 years, you know, since I was a teenager and I was just like, you know what, I, I'm I'm ready for a little break. So, you know, I literally sailed off into the sunset until the pandemic hit. And here we are because we, I, I,
0: I, we're we running out of time, but I, we got to talk about natography. You're the CEO of natography. What do you want with being a CEO of a startup in this environment at at, at
1: your age with all your accomplishment? Why, where do you find those juices? Um. Well, you know, so... The thing that Netography has built is exactly the thing that I thought should be built if you're going to keep doing network-based security. Um, So So here's the funny What have they built? So it's a, I mean, deep deep down inside, it's a platform for telling you what you've got, what it's doing, and what's happening to it. You know, sort of like an intrusion detection or prevention engine, sort of like a network discovery and mapping system, but it's... but it doesn't operate on packets. It operates on flow data. And, and as a result, and it, it can take data in from all the different cloud providers. They all support flow data and all the on-prem infrastructure that people have in their enterprises. So I can give you one global picture of what we call the atomized network, which is kind of this, you know, all these enterprises today have these atoms of presence and these atoms of compute that are scattered across the major cloud providers and in their on-prem infrastructure. And they have a really hard time of getting their hands around you know, just the basics. What have I got? What is it doing? What's happening to it? And what's happening to it? You know, that can be it's under attack or it's, you know, not sending out packets and it hasn't been for a while or, you know, whatever. Um, so each one of those kind of those three categories, you know, you you open the lid of each one of them. There's a lot in each one of those categories. But the thing that really got me interested in it is that it's a metadata analytics platform uh, on the, on the one hand, but. You know what we did with with AMP with EDR. I was really fascinated. Like we bought AMP because the architecture that Oliver and Adam and Al built. And AMP um, is what back, Immunet became, right? When it right started. AMP is what it, Immunet became. That architecture, that that global detection back end, where you just update the back end and your entire deployed footprint globally um, becomes, you know, capable against that threat. It's incredibly powerful. And I spent years thinking about how would you do that. But for network traffic, network activity, because it only works on files and processes in the uh, you know in the AMP world. But what if I wanted to do that on the network? And the the idea for the platform I came up with, I never built. But I started advising the uh, the, the, the 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 netography guys back in 2019, and they built exactly what I thought should be built. It's got this you know this right ones to detect everywhere back end global uh you know the global footprint is protected simultaneously, so on and so forth, so I thought, wow, these guys are you know really on the right thing, and it's not an appliance architecture, and it's not doing deep packet inspection to do it it's the right architecture, it's low friction, it's pure sas, there's nothing to deploy to make it work uh and it can do these cool things that that nobody has figured out how to do yet um and it's it's really powerful, so you know i i I jumped into the company because I thought. Competitively, um, nobody it was an architecturally superior approach, and nobody was prepared to compete uh, with this approach to doing things. So I thought, you know, we'd have a lot of room to run uh, once I got in here, displacing existing vendors, uh, plus just going into spaces with companies that recognize hey, I do have one of these atomized networks. Uh, I really, and I have no way to get visibility everywhere right now, and I need it. I can't see what's happening in multi-cloud environments. I, you know, I do whatever cloud trail on Amazon and I do um, you know, whatever on GCP and I've got some stuff trying to keep tabs mm-hmm. of what's going on in my enterprise network. And there's these huge gaps between them. And you know, as I say, t- attackers live in the gaps. So we have something that's you know, got this gapless architecture and it's very, very Let powerful. Let me ask you the
0: obvious question. What is the Gartner acronym for this? Uh, (laughs) maybe because I'm hearing, I'm hearing attack surface management. I'm hearing network discovery. I'm hearing, you know, some sort of digital, like HD Moran is working on rumble. I'm hearing some of that as well. Where do you, like, how do you see, what is the category here?
1: That's a great question. We actually talked to Gartner um, a couple of months ago and told him what we were up to. And, you know, we originally, when I first showed up here, we were calling ourselves NDR, but we, Kind NDR meaning network detection and
0: response, like EDR. But you right, exactly. Because right. that's, that's the limitation of EDR is that it doesn't cover the
1: network. Doesn't Right. All the network stuff's out of scope. So this stuff. So you is you know, XDR? Yeah, product. I'm
0: hearing that XDR uh, acronym as well. But what, what are you hearing from the Gartner folks about
1: where you fit? Well, what they said was uh, you're you're not... NDR or XDR, you're something different. And in fact, it sounds like you're something new and, you know, and we don't know what to call it. So we'll, we'll figure that it out. Is that a good thing though? I mean, uh, is, is that a
0: good thing for your sales cycle and for your sales and marketing operations to fit who your target audience profile is? And
1: Well, okay. So that, that's an <laughs> excellent question. So from a, you know, to all you entrepreneurs out there, do you want to be in a Gartner category or do you not want to be in a Gartner category? Well, budget gets allocated in categories typically, so it's probably better to be in a category than not in a lot of ways on the one hand. But on the other hand, if you are defining a new category, if you are the new, new thing, then that has value all to itself, even though it's not necessarily in the, the classic budget cycles that you see. And what we're seeing when talking to customers uh, is when, you know, they're just prospects, we get in there and we start telling them what we're up to. And like the people who get it, they're like, Oh really? You're doing that? Okay. Yes, we need that. And, you know, very rapid turnaround. Um, you know, these customer engagements are lasting, uh, three or four months instead of, you know, three or four quarters. Um, so it's, it's really kind of fascinating. The people who get it, really get it. And we think that's just the, that's the, uh, leading edge of the early adopters. Um, so yeah, it's, Great we got a few more minutes
0: because I want to just tackle one small thing about you as a CEO at a startup at this stage. You're, you're, you're intrigued by the intellectual challenge. You're an engineer at heart and a builder at heart, but the CEO of the startup is a fundraiser. Like you're, you're selling and fundraising. And you talked about being pulled into sales meetings. The majority of startup CEOs are the best salespeople. The good CEOs are the best salespeople. How, how do you navigate that world of where the intellectual challenge and the fun is versus the reality of running a startup in this environment, in this market, where fundraising becomes more
1: difficult and so on? Like, is that a crazy thing in your head? Uh it's not. I actually kind of look at it as all aspects of the same problem, which is building making this company successful, right? So I, I was talking to somebody about this recently. Um I almost look at it so one of the things that Sourcefire was back in the day was it was it was almost like a, a hack of business models. Like how do we get people to pay for somebody something that's free? So I'm going to hack a business model thing, right. that, that achieves that, right? So like selling and financing the thing and, and like getting in front of people and, and convincing them to you know s- start adopting your worldview and and you know nodding their heads up and down when you're talking about you know the theories and concepts here. Uh, that really actually is very. Uh, entertaining yeah, for me, I really love sport, right. seeing people like, yeah, seeing the lights go on, because um, you know I'm a bit of a fast talker, and that I think comes from my upbringing. I grew up in a very non-technical family, so when people were asking me about what I was up to, I would always try to get as much information out as quickly as possible before they lost right, interest. Right. <laughs> so i've i've been uh, I've been working, you know, my entire life on like getting to the lights on moment of aha, I understand what you're talking about. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that's actually, I really enjoy that part of it, the, the, like the moment of insight that, um, that gets people to all of a sudden, like, you know, you see it, you can actually see it on people's faces when the lights go on. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't call it social engineering or anything like that, but it, it's, you, you know, the hacker mindset applies to all these problems. Like the hacker mindset of how do I decompose this in ways that are different and, and, tweak the system to make do what I want to do. Everywhere across the board. Are you bullish on Mm cybersecurity still? Are you
0: bullish on on, on security even in this environment with, you know, there's the venture capital uh, uh, world, the valuations seem to be out of control. It just, it seems very, very chaotic times. Uh, When you look forward, are you bullish and, and excited about where things are? Because I have a larger question, Marty. We've been doing this for 20 years, Right. And mm-hmm. we've spent billions and billions and billions of dollars on security over the years, but we still have a ransomware epidemic. And every big organization will say, if I haven't found an APT in my network is because I haven't looked hard enough. So it feels like where are we? Are, are you an optimist that we're heading in the right direction and things are being fixed? Or are you, you know, this kind of realist that after all this money is spent, we still seem to be insecure.
1: Well, I'll leave it there. I'll use that
0: as the last question because we're really running out of time.
1: That's a deep question. Okay. So um, on the one hand, uh, the fundamentals are getting better. So whether the CPU processing architectures are getting more secure, the operating systems have more security features that are built into them to make it harder for there to be things like... Buffer overflows and heap yeah, overflows look and SQL at the Chrome, injection and things You like look that. at the
0: Chrome list of bugs every other week; it's a list of memory corruption issues. Apple's macOS advisories are full of memory corruption issues. As much as there are sandboxes and roadblocks and mitigations here and there everywhere, we still seems to be back in the same boat. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's uh, memory <laughs> management is tough. Um, so, you know, there's been tons and tons of kind of fundamental work and even, you zero know, zero trust, trust architecture M- MFA and, and that stuff, you know, yeah. multi-factor authentication, all that stuff. There's been a lot of uh, great inroads made in a lot of areas to secure things more effectively on the one hand. On the other hand, um, there is also the problem of – so this is uh, – This will probably be a great wrap up. So, one of the things that I like to talk about, you know, we we talk about TAM in the startup world, total addressable market. So, this is how much money is available in a space for a startup to to go after. Um, So, I would posit to you that TAM for attackers, TAM for the hackers, is lines of code, right? Because lines of code, for every thousand lines of code that you write, there's going to be some statistically normal number of those lines that have um, bugs in them and some statistically normal percentage of those bugs are gonna be security bugs. So what happens if I exponentially increase the number of lines of code that are in the code. We're we're creating
0: more code than we are capable of even realistically securing. I mean, that's just the reality of where we are. So we're on this hamster wheel forever, basically.
1: So and that's Tam for bad guys, right? So um, that's it, the it's the worst a worst place uh, to leave it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a depressing <laughs> take, but I agree with you. I mean, I'm am I'm, I'm not a big I'm not a big
1: fan of where we are. Uh, I just feel like after well, all this you know, investment in and spend, this is where we are. Yeah, I mean, this microphone has software on it. The, sure. My light bulbs have software. On it. We're putting software on everything. Is everybody who's writing that software like, Impossible. should they be? <laughs> so, Marty, thank
0: yeah, you very much. You better problem. come back because I haven't touched on half of my questions
1: here. Appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Okay, Ryan. Yeah, definitely. I loved it. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to come back sometime to say thank you, know. my friend. Thanks.